Reality family. Welcome to the teaching portion of our online gathering. If you are new or you've just been following sporadically with us as we've walked through the Gospel of Mark, I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about where we've been, what we're going to talk about today, and then also where we're going in this series. The Gospel of Mark really tells us everything that we need to know in the first verse of the first chapter. It summarizes everything by saying this is the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we spent at the outset a couple uh, weeks looking at those words, but we've also watched as Jesus has, has lived them out. And in the beginning of the gospel, he is uh, wearing the crown. He is showing what it means that he is the king who's come from heaven to bring the kingdom of heaven here. And as he does various things, the, the uh, people are getting excited that, that Jesus is here, that the king is here, and what this might mean for them and for their people. And this all culminates at the end of chapter 8, where Peter finally confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. He is this long-awaited, anointed one. But in a strange interaction, Jesus says, I have to suffer and die. The king has to suffer and die. And so we spent a couple weeks looking at what it means that Jesus, the king from heaven, has to suffer and die. And last week, Gareth, one of our leaders, walked us through what it looks like when these two things, these paradoxical ideas, come together at the last moments of Jesus' life in his road to the cross and his trial. And the ironies that emerge when these two things, the king of heaven, who has to suffer and die, come together. Today, we're going to look at the crucifixion of Jesus. And uh, that will carry on into this next week. We're partnering with several churches in East Van to look at the, the cross of Jesus through Holy Week. And on Friday, Good Friday, at 7.30, we'll have an online gathering together where we look at the cross of Jesus. And then we'll end uh, on Sunday with uh, celebrating Easter with a resurrection of Jesus with our regular online gathering. And then actually after that, we'll go back and look at the Gospel of Mark one more time. Now that we've seen Jesus as the king, as the one who has to suffer, and the one who dies and is resurrected, we'll look at the theme of discipleship briefly through the Gospel of Mark. What does it mean for those of us who say we follow this kind of Jesus? As that's a really important theme in the Gospel of Mark. But as I said, today we're going to look at the crucifixion of Jesus. And uh, in coming to the crucifixion as resurrection of Jesus, we have a bit of a problem. And the problem is that we're, we're too familiar with this story. Um, and, and because we're so familiar with it, we know where the story ends, that Jesus dies, but that he'll be resurrected. Uh, it can lose its bite and its pertinence for us. And it can quickly become stale. And we can lose the sense that, that the gospel writer Mark has and that the first readers would have had and definitely the people in the story would have had this shock and amazement as Jesus goes towards the cross. And so when I come to these familiar stories uh, in the Bible, which is on one hand is great, it's great that we're familiar with them and we know the story of the Bible. But when I come to them, I I often remember one of the slogans from our sister city to the south, Portland. They say, let's keep Portland weird. And uh, if you look this up online, you'll see all sorts of interesting uh, pictures of, of what keeping Portland weird means. One of my favorite is a guy who's riding a unicycle and wearing a kilt and dressed like a stormtrooper. And he's also playing bagpipes that shoot fire. So a very unique uh, thing that I've definitely never witnessed before. But this desire to keep Portland weird, we need to also keep this story weird a little bit to keep it strange in order not just for us to hear something new or to have a unique sermon or to keep your attention, although I hope to do that, but it's actually to recapture the significance of what's going on. Like I said, what have been amazing for the first hearers that mobilized them to put their hope and faith in Jesus and then follow him with their lives. 
And so uh, thankfully, the gospel writer Mark actually helps us to do this in the way that he set up his story. Like I said, he gives the summary statement in chapter one, verse one, but then he separates the book out into three sections. So the first section is Jesus in Nazareth. The second section is Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. And the final section is Jesus in Jerusalem. And each of these sections has a story that really highlights what it means that this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's his baptism, his transfiguration, and his crucifixion. And so we're going to look at all three stories today in order to see if we can bring some new light to what it means that Jesus died for us. So Mark chapter 1, we're going to start with his baptism in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, and invite you to grab your Bibles. And as always, if you're watching on the video, the words will be up on the screen beside me. So Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 9, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. Now in the Bible or the language of the Bible, baptism means a lot of different things. It's a, it's a whole world, word cloud of, of meaning, like many concepts are in the Bible. But for today, one of the things we need to realize about baptism, the baptism of Jesus, is that it's, it's a way of signaling repentance. And it's like repentance in the Bible is saying we're going in one direction and now we're going to turn and walk in a new direction. So for those of us who are walking away from God, baptism is a way of us publicly showing a a sign act, a symbol of us turning, turning away from our own ways and turning towards God. Now, Jesus was not a person who had sinned, so he's never walking out of step with God, but he's showing that God is starting something new, which is the same thing. Baptism is starting something new. I'm taking a new direction. And, and through his baptism, he's announcing that God is doing something new in the world. And that's why it's at the very start of the story. But as he announces that, that God is doing something new in and through Jesus and his ministry, it's also actually a judgment on Israel that they have not been able to fulfill the vision of what it means to be God's people. They have not brought shalom into the world and been a reflection of God as he's called them to be. And so God has sent Jesus to be a new reflection into the world. He's starting something new through his baptism. Okay, so next verse, verse 10. As soon as Jesus came up out of the water, keep that in your mind, that phrase, coming up. It's going to be important. It's going to link all these stories together. So as soon as Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open. Now, if you remember uh, back to a couple weeks ago when I had the whiteboard behind me and uh, I talked through what it means that heaven and earth Uh, come together um, and also misspelt uh, a few words. Thank you to everyone who quickly let me know um, that uh, and and for being my spell check. Uh, We remember that the heavens signal this this space that's God's space and earth is our space. And that's true. But like I just said, uh, in the Bible, each concept has, has many different themes running through it. And so this passage is drawing on a few more ideas about heaven and what it means that we need to be aware of that first century Jews would have latched onto right away. So in the Bible, the moments where heaven and earth come together, where heaven touches down, there are also moments where we actually learn to see clearly. We can now see uh, with open eyes, or we might say with spiritual eyes, the way that our world actually is and, and what the, the correct ordering is of the world. And if you remember back to, like I said, when I used the blackboard, I talked about that space, the place where heaven and earth meet in, in the um, ancient Near East it was a temple. That's the place where God and people or gods and people could come together. 
It's the place where we see the world anew, the world as it was intended to be. And if you read through some of the very tedious passages in the Old Testament that talk about the temple, one of the things that you'll notice is that there's lots of pictures of, of trees and fruit and angels and all these different things. And, and it's trying actually to draw back to the original story, the original meeting place of God and people, Eden. So people, as they go to the temple, were to learn to see, even though they might be in the middle of a barren wasteland uh, and things may be going terribly in their life, that they would come to the temple and be restoried to what it means that we are God's people and sent out into the world. And in the Gospel of Mark, we, we, if you read through it, we haven't taken the time in this series, but you'll see blind men that are healed by God. And it's the same idea that when heaven comes down in the person of Jesus and meets them, they receive sight, that they're able not only to see their world, maybe for the first time, but they see spiritually. They see and proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God, the King. And so um, by using these words that the heavens are a torn open, the author is trying to say that something is happening in this passage that allows us to see the world as it is um, spiritually. It opens our eyes to a new way of seeing the world as God does. And that'll be really important as we continue on in looking at the next two stories. The second thing that this passage is saying when it's saying that the heavens are open, it comes from Isaiah. It's actually quoting Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, just before it quotes this passage, Isaiah is lamenting and he's saying that, you know, our people, our hearts are hard and we follow God, but it's just for a moment and then we, we so quickly turn away. And so Isaiah pleads out to God. He says, please make yourself known. He says, if only you would tear the heavens open and come down, then we would truly follow you. He said, that's our only hope. And so by quoting this in the gospel of Mark, he's also quoting Isaiah that this is the moment where God is coming down. There's a moment of recreation that's happening. Something new is going on. And it's a moment that we can see clearly from God's perspective what's happening in our world. Okay, so the heavens are open and the spirit descends on him like a dove, the end of uh, verse 10. Now this uh, phrase, the spirit descending um, like a dove, has several hyperlinks to the, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, the story that, that the first hearers of the gospel of Mark would have been very familiar with. It goes all the way back to the first chapter that in, in the first chapter we have uh, earth as a formless and void place. It's a place of darkness, but the spirit of God is hovering over. And so there's anticipation, if you know the story, that God is going to speak some words. And he's going to create, and he's going to create a space for human flourishing, for shalom. The second thing that we, this references is that when uh, there were anointed figures, especially kings, people that were chosen by God, the Holy Spirit would come and rest on them. And the third thing that it's referencing is the story of Noah. If you're familiar, after God sends a flood, he's recreating the world. And Noah is waiting for this moment where there might be some dry land that he, is, he and his family can restart the human project of reflecting God into the world and creating a place of shalom. And so all of these things are being referenced in this moment with Jesus, that the spirit is resting on him, is coming on him like a dove. And then we hear uh, the words from heaven. In verse 11, it says, a voice came from heaven. So from God's space, God is speaking. It says, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. And so who is this man? At the very start of the story, we see it is Jesus Christ, the son of God. And it creates a moment of anticipation for us. This is exciting news. There's lots of potential for what this could mean. But it's also a moment of paradox 
Remember, because Jesus is being baptized, he's saying he's starting something new. It means that Israel has failed, that God's chosen people have failed to reflect him into the world. Okay, so that's the first story, uh, Jesus' baptism from the first section of the Gospel of Mark. Now let's look at the second one, which is Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. And so the context here, Jesus is just getting ready to set out on the road to Jerusalem. And uh, he, Peter, has just confessed that he's the Messiah. Jesus said, now I have to suffer and die. So starting in verse 2, uh, it says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up, remember, on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. Now, um, in the, the, we see that Jesus is going up here again. He's going on to a mountain. And again, we got to remember that, that this world is different than ours. We think of it differently. So they would think of the world as a flat space and heavens would be up above, uh, for example, the night sky. So going up on a mountain gets you closer to heaven. It's a place where we can be close to God. And we can also start to see the world from God's perspective. The higher that you go up in the world, you'll be able to see in their way of thinking the world and, and, and the kingdoms of the world. So that's what Jesus is doing here. Um, I, I really like the NHL. And sometimes with uh, young players that are really, really good, they'll, the coach will let them play for, for you know 10 or 11 games. And then they'll pull them out. And they'll take them out of the game, the next game, and they'll actually ask them to go sit on the press box, which is way above the rink. And they'll ask them to, to sit up there in order to observe the game in a new way. Because the idea is that when you're playing, you can only see uh, so far in front of you. But when you sit up there and you watch the game, it actually slows it down and you learn to play uh, and be a wiser and better player. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's getting them to this bird's eye view, this God's eye view of the world by going up on top of the mountain. Okay, so um, the end of chap- uh, verse 2, it says, He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. So this word that he was transfigured means, we could say that he was made glorious in front of them. And so Jesus, in this moment, is given all the concealed splendor and the glory that he's always had as God himself. And it's important that we notice that this is a passive voice. He was made, he was transfigured. It was done to him. God is giving him this glory and showing, again, this moment where the heavens are open, where people are close to heaven and they're able to see Jesus for who he actually is. And then verse four, Elijah appeared to them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. So the strange moment uh, where uh, Elijah and Moses show up and uh, what the author is referencing is that these are heavenly figures. They're stor- people from the very important figures from the Hebrew scriptures. And the idea is that they were dwelling with God in heaven. And so by being with Jesus, it's showing that Jesus is with God. He is in the heavenly places. Um, and so uh, let's skip down to verse 7. And, and so a cloud appears, again, over them, overshadowing them. And a voice comes from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So again, we get this sneak peek into God's view of the world as he opens up the heavens for, for the disciples, but for us to see. Who is this man? He's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And again, it's a moment of both being awestruck. Imagine being there as Peter, James, and John and just being flabbergasted by what's going on and the dazzling white of, of who Jesus is as he meets with these figures that you've only ever heard about. But it's also a moment of paradox, um, and it says in the passage, we didn't read it, but it says in the end of verse six that they were also terrified 
because they understand and they've never, they, they understand now a little bit more of who Jesus is. And this glory always has this paradoxical effect of drawing us in and also of us being afraid. It'd be like, imagine if I invited you over to the chapel and I said, hey, I got to move a few things from the prayer room downstairs. Would you mind like just coming and give me a hand for a couple minutes? And you showed up, you know, you've got your work clothes on or clothes that can get dirty and you meet me in the prayer room and it's me and it's you and it's some um, person that you think is an amazing person, someone you never thought you would meet, someone very important in your life, someone you look up to a lot. And that's the third person there grabbing the other side of the couch. You would probably both be awestruck and excited to meet this person, but maybe also at the same time, a little embarrassed that you showed up like this and unprepared. And that's a very small sliver of what we experience and what the disciples are experiencing as they see just a sneak peek of the glory of Jesus. Okay, so that's the transfiguration. So finally, let's look at uh, Mark chapter 15 and the crucifixion of Jesus while keeping in mind these other two stories that we've just looked at. And so we need to remember here that Jesus has now come from Nazareth. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem at the end of his time. And in this passage, the context, as Gareth led us through last week, Jesus is up. He's not up in a place uh, um, coming out of the water or in a place of glory, but he's up on the cross. Not transfigured or baptized, but in, in a place of humiliation and rejection and punishment. And verse 33 says, It was noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Darkness in the the Bible represents a lot of different things. A time of mourning, uh, death of a great person. It can be judgment uh, and sometimes talked about as the day of the Lord. It can mean a new beginning and the absence of God. Um, As we saw in, in, we talked about Genesis 1. And all of these things are, are at play in this story. Like I said, a lot of the things that happen in the Bible or the references, they reference not just a single thing, but a word cloud, many different things. And all of these ideas are happening at the cross, that there's mourning and death and judgment that are happening. Uh, But this is also a summary of our world. Remember in the other stories, when the heavens open, it illuminates something about our world and about Jesus that we were maybe a little blind to before we couldn't see. And so by saying that the heavens were dark in this passage, it's opening us up to the reality of of how God sees our world. It's, as we've talked about, a place of of darkness that we as human beings have this amazing and beautiful potential, but it's also our world is a place of darkness because we are enslaved to the dark forces. The people over us in the heavens are dark. And so that is what this is, is referencing. It's not a place, like I said, that God is speaking out of a place of blessing but rather showing that we are a people who are enslaved. And in verse 34, it says that three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And so in the, in the past two passages we looked at, the voice of God does speak out. But this passage is a surprise because the voice of God is not coming from above, uh, offering blessing or glory, but rather it's the voice of God coming from below. It's Jesus, the Son of God. And he's crying out in pain and abandonment. And the words that he uses here are Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And it's one of the few places where the gospel writers write in Aramaic, which would have been the tongue that Jesus actually, the language that Jesus actually spoke. And he's trying to get across to us the rawness of this moment. You, you, you want to hear 
the crying out of Jesus as he says those words. And these are the actual words, the, the gospel writer's trying to say, these are the actual words that was on Jesus' tongue in this moment. And so he's crying out, but again, they're not coming from a place of glory from the heavens speaking out. They're coming from God below. They're the depths of human, this is the voice of the depths of human pain. What it means to be human in the Bible and the human vocation is to know God and to reflect him into the world. But this, what Jesus has entered, is is a picture of what darkness does to us. It cuts us off from ourselves, that we don't know truly who we are, and so we're all in search. We go out in search of it in the world. We have um, distance between ourselves and other people, and we have distance between ourselves and our environment. But it also means that we are distant from God, that we are cut off from the source of our life and the light that we are called to reflect in the world. And so Jesus' cry out is the cry out, what he says of every, every human being, that we are people who are abandoned. And so Jesus is crying out from from this place of human pain that we are enslaved to the darkness. Again, he's showing us this reality. And it shows us too that he's entered fully into the human problem. He's walking this path of downward mobility, that he truly has come to serve, that he's alone and he's abandoned. And and this is not the point of the sermon, but I do want to say, you know, if, if you feel that way this Easter, and it's been just such a tough year for so many of us, that you are a place of, of lament that God and Jesus, one of the things that shows us on the cross is that he can understand what that looks like to be in that place of despair and loneliness. And you know, as Christians, sometimes we're often so fast, we want people to get out of lament and into places of joy and praise. But you know, Easter is one of those times where we can sit. Where we can sit in lament with Jesus and focus on that with him and allow him to to be with us and also minister to us in those places of darkness as we cry out as we feel the effects of the the kingdom of darkness over us okay verse 35 and 36 so some they're standing uh, so some of those standing there hear this heard jesus crying out and they say see he's calling for elijah Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed on a stick, and offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. As Gareth referenced last week, this is a deep irony because if you read through the Gospel of Mark, the Elijah figure has already came, John the Baptist, and they killed him. And Jesus has already met with Elijah. We just saw that in the transfiguration. So Elijah is not coming. That's not the point of this passage. They miss it entirely. Then in verse 37, Jesus let out a loud cry. And breathed his last. This is Jesus giving up his life, as he said, as a ransom for many to free us from the dark forces that are over us, to take us out of our enslavement to them. It says, verse 38, then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so we have this picture, the curtain of the temple being opened up. And if you remember, the temple is the place where heaven meets earth. And um, it means that the heavens are now open to us. And in the, the, the Jewish temple, there was a space um, where uh, God's glory dwelled. It was in the Holy of Holies, and it separated God from everyone else. And, and in the, the biblical story, God is both holy and gracious. He's majestic, and he draws us to him, but that also makes him dangerous. Just as we saw when the disciples uh, encountered Jesus in some of his glory, they were both drawn to him and in awestruck, but at terrified at the same time. And God's presence has the same effect in the Bible. We can't just waltz in because not only is he beautiful, but it's dangerous to us. 
And so by ripping this curtain open in two, it's saying that the glory of God is now open to each and every one of us, that we're able to enter and that the glory of God is now shining into the world. And Jesus is fulfilling what he came to do, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, to be a new temple. By allowing his body to be ripped open, he is ripping open this space that we can now come into the presence of God through Jesus. We'll end by looking at verse 39 together. When the centurion who was standing opposite Jesus saw the way that he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Gareth focused on irony uh, in in last week's sermon, and and this statement continues on in the irony. And I want to close here by pointing out uh, three things that the centurion doesn't know about his statement, that this truly was the Son of God, but we do. And I hope that this leads us towards the heart of the cross and what I think the gospel writer Mark is trying to say. So the first thing, uh, the first thing that the irony that, that the centurion doesn't know but we do is that the crucifixion is the ultimate moment of Jesus' life and ministry. So Jesus is the king and the servant as we've seen. Um, and, and he's not coming to, to renounce his kingship by dying, but he's actually redefining it for us. of What it means that he is both a king and the king that comes to serve of what God looks like as a human. And the person who sees Jesus for who he is in this moment is not the disciples who have been following Jesus the whole time and Peter who has confessed Jesus before, but rather it's the enemy. It's a Roman soldier, someone who has helped to kill Jesus. And the the soldier doesn't know all that's happened in the last 15 chapters. You know, he hasn't been with Jesus. He's really speaking from ignorance. You know, we might say in in our uh, series that he's just got a Coleman barbecue perspective on who Jesus is. And he's just come in at at this most true but paradoxical moment and he doesn't have the whole backstory. But yet the centurion looks at Jesus in the way that he dies and he says, you are truly the king of the world. And and one of the things I think this says to us is that we don't need to know everything um, in order to follow Jesus, just like the centurion didn't. You know, Easter is really an invitation to see, just to come even in this last moment to see Jesus and say maybe there's something in this story Maybe there's something in the way that even he gave up his life. And maybe there's something in this person, Jesus, that I want to look into, to see the world in a new way. And it's also an invitation to speak, as the centurion did, to confess the oldest confession in the Bible, simply that Jesus is Lord, and confess and make that true, as we'll talk about in a minute. So the centurion really doesn't know. He, doesn't, he just knows so little, yet he responds. But, you know, for those of us who have been in the Gospel of Mark, we've been studying it for these past few months, and, and for those of us who have been a Christian and we know inside and outside the, the story of, of Jesus, we know much more than this centurion. We, we, Jesus, uh, Jesus who heals, a king who comes to heal, is not any news to us. You know, we know that God comes to still the chaos and give us a kingdom of hope and justice We're not surprised by a king who comes to suffer and walk this path of downward mobility and and calls us to follow him. Or that uh, his death is a ransom that frees us uh, from our enslavement to the dark forces of the world. And so the centurion proclaims and gives glory to the tiny picture of who he knows Jesus to be. But how about you and I, if we have a much bigger picture you know, do, do we still confess him for all that he is? Are we still continually confessing that bigger picture and do, our, does, um, do we really believe all that we say about Jesus? And do our lives reflect that confession? You know, the, the centurion doesn't know, but we do. 
that Jesus' death is an invitation to respond to the good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The second irony in this passage is that by speaking the words, uh, Jesus is the Son of God. The centurion is actually speaking the words of God. Remember back to our first two stories in Mark 1 and Mark 9. It's God who says that Jesus is his son. And by taking on these words, the centurion is actually following through unwittingly with what Mark has asked us to do at the beginning, to believe that this is good news. And to what Jesus has said in verse chapter 1, verse 14, to repent and believe. Again, this is just turning away from our way of thinking and agreeing with God. And that is what the centurion is doing. I'm agreeing that Jesus is the son of God. Another way we might say it is to replace your words and your attitudes and your perspectives and your direction with those of God, to allow your eyes to be opened to this perspective from heaven that Jesus might actually be this person that he says he is, and to learn to see the world in with eyes wide open the way that God does. And so here's what the centurion doesn't know, that he's taking on the words of God, but we do. And the other thing the centurion doesn't know is that when we repent and we believe, something actually happens, something mysterious and, and, and wild happens in our lives. That Jesus' death frees us from the curse and the enslavement of sin. That's true. That's what's happening at the cross. But we also receive the blessing from the first story, from Jesus' baptism, and the glory from his transfiguration too. That what happens on the cross, is that what happens or what's true of the Messiah also becomes true of us. You know, some theologians have called this the great exchange. And because Jesus, the Son of God, is who's pleading with the Father, is rejected in Mark 15. The Roman centurion receives the blessing from the Father in Mark 1. He now gets to hear these words, you are my son, in you I am well pleased. And because Jesus, the King of all glory, the transfigured one, dies, cursed on a tree in Mark chapter 15, the centurion receives the glory of the transfiguration that we saw given to Jesus in Mark 9 that he can now share in the glory of God, be welcomed into the, the family of God and be sent out with his clothes dazzling white to reflect the glory of God into the world. Jesus the Messiah dies and the Roman centurion receives blessing and glory. The Roman centurion doesn't know all this, but we do. What about you? Do you, do you, know? you know? Have you received what Jesus offers, the fullness of what Jesus offers through his crucifixion? I think that many of us think of a very small perspective, a Coleman barbecue version of what the gospel is. That I have a sin issue and Jesus comes to die to take care of it. And so phew, you know, that issue is gone. But the problem with this limited perspective is, is that we don't also understand that we receive the blessing of Jesus as the son of God and the glory of God in the gospel. All of these things are true at the same time. And so what ends up happening is that we just think our life, you know, our, our, our sin problem is gone, but then we, we, we head out into life, still searching for blessing and glory around every turn. You know, we head into every relationship looking for the blessing that could come into our lives and the glory that it could bring us. You know, every time we interact with our social media, we do so in a way that's going to bring, uh, you know, strokes into our life that we're going to just check how, how often or how many people liked our, our, you know, our social media posts. And we'll feel great when we do, we'll feel blessed when we do, and we'll feel terrible and unblessed and unloved when we don't. 
will reject the path of service and downward mobility because we're so focused on our getting our blessing and glory now, living a life that's comfortable, living a life that's upwardly mobile. And we think if, you know, if we just had kids or just we just had a spouse or if we just had a career or if we, you know, have kids and a spouse and a career, if we just had a better kids or a better spouse and better career, then we would truly be blessed. The blessing is always just around the corner and we go out in life in search of it. But what the centurion doesn't know, but you and I should, is that when Jesus goes to the cross, it's our opportunity, yes, for our sin burden to be released for us to be untethered to the dark forces of the world, but it's also our opportunity to receive the blessing of Jesus. That you, each of us, can hear God's voice, that you are his child, that he is pleased with you. There's no more need to earn because the God of the universe looks at you with a smile and with open arms because of Jesus on the cross. And that when Jesus goes to the cross as your king, when we take him as our king, that we receive the glory of God, the splendor of God, that our life now has a purpose to come into God's presence, to have our clothing made white, and to actually reflect the glory of God into the world. So the, sin, the cross is, is not just an escape hatch from sin and its consequences. It's actually an invitation to be recreated and, and renewed and to come into the presence of God to come into the temple, to be restoried and remade and recreated and then to be sent out into the world as a new human and part of the family of God to reflect our glorious God into the world. The centurion doesn't know any of this, but we do. And yet, it all stands in front of him just like it all stands in front of us. The death of Jesus is freedom from the tyranny of sin, but it's also the call to blessing and glory, the glory of God. And finally, the final, the final irony in this story uh, is that this, of the centurion's confession is this, that by saying these words, Jesus is truly the son of God. He is actually starting on the path to discipleship. One commentator I read said this, the Romans had a highly developed and theatrical sense of public ceremony. So everything that they did in public was very theatrical and big. And this included crucifixions as terrible as we might think that sounds. They would make a big display of it It would be a huge event. And they had two reasons for doing crucifixions as a big event. Number one is that it served to suffer or for the the, um, criminal to suffer as long as possible, to be both humiliated and then to suffer, which is ironic because Jesus dies quite quickly. But the second reason is that it served as a warning and a deterrent, not for the criminal, but for everybody watching by making it a big spectacle and display. They would warn everybody else not to take this path, not to go against Rome. And it's here that we find the irony in our point that Jesus' death actually produces the exact opposite response in the centurion. Because every Roman citizen would need to celebrate and proclaim that Caesar is the son of God. He is the one who represents God in the world and has his authority and power over him. And as someone who served in the Roman military complex, the centurion would be well aware that this was not only true, but this was his job. His job was to protect and to proclaim and to take to the world through force that Caesar is the true son of God. And Jesus died, in fact, because he was somewhat challenging this authority. But it doesn't stop the centurion when he looks at Jesus and the way that he dies to actually commit treason. He says, Jesus, and not the son, not Caesar, sorry, 
is the true son of God. He is actually the true king of the world. And in saying these words, the centurion is actually giving himself a death sentence. If anyone hears that he says this and reports him, he will surely die. In Mark's language, he must suffer and die. And so unwittingly, he's following Jesus on the downward path of being rejected, suffering, and dying by saying that Jesus is the true son of God. He doesn't know, but we do. We've been with Jesus on this road. We've seen him saying these things, like he said in Mark 8, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. We've seen Jesus walking this path himself. So what about us? If we call Jesus our king, that he is our our God, are our lives characterized by picking up our cross? You know, luckily for us, we don't have a Roman military complex coming, ready to barge in the door as I preach about Jesus being the God of the world. But on the other hand, that makes us much more difficult and much more complacent. We have to take up our cross and and do it daily. It's something that we have to choose, which is more difficult. Does your life reflect that call of Jesus and the words and the outcome for the centurion? You know, are our lives characterized by denying ourselves or giving into ourselves? Are we characterized by trying to save ourselves or by admitting that we're hopeless but redeemed? He doesn't know, but we do. That proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God is a call to join him on the path to the cross and becoming a servant. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. And we thank you, uh, even though it is something that that probably is maybe overly too familiar with us and, and maybe difficult to say that we even thank you for your death, that you welcome us into your family and that we get to stand along people like this Roman centurion, odd people in the story, people undeserving, and say that you are the son of God, that you are, you are the one who is the true king of the world. As we sing, as we process throughout this week, and as we get towards celebrating Easter, would you teach us what that means? That you are our savior, that you are our king, that you died for us, and that you've liberated us, that you've given us your blessing and glory, and that you call us to join you on the path of downward mobility. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 